If a successful colonization is to divide and conquer, an answer to that has to be reconnecting the pieces they are trying to divide. This podcast attempts to hold space to connect the pieces of Palestinian society because it is the dissolution of Palestine across the world that calls for spaces to reassemble the people. So, grab a cup of shai or kahwa, and let's have a conversation. This is Connecting the Fragments. and I am having a conversation with my very own father, Nazar, an exiled Palestinian who survived what is known as the Six-Day War as a young child. Today, we are talking about the power of memory, how it connects us to our roots, but is also a tool of liberation and building towards the future. We will situate this conversation in the grander themes of the show with existence, resistance, and overall fragmentation. Welcome, Baba. Thank you, Rada. It's a pleasure to be here. Aw, it's a pleasure to have you. I'm really excited to do this uh, show with you today. I'm really excited to have this conversation. I know you wonderfully. You are my baba. Um, you are my dad. But for those who are listening to us, can you tell me a bit about yourself? Of course. First of all, I'm honored to be here in your presence. My name is Nizar. I was born in Ramallah, Palestine. My family comes from a village called Beiduku, not too far from Ramallah in Palestine. I lived through the 1967 war at the age of uh, six, and it's still with me every day of my life, unfortunately. I want to ask, can you talk to me a little bit about what you remember from the Six-Day War in 1967? I know that these are um, difficult memories to bring up, so I'm very thankful for you uh, to share them with us today. Yeah, as a young child, the memories are very strong. They do make me very angry at times, you know, but they also make me stronger. I'm able to accept that I will possibly be able to endure the outcome, and maybe if any situation that is thrown at me, uh, in hindsight, seeing you know what i went through what i lived through i really tend sometimes to try to forget it you know but it's it's not easy to forget war is a horrible scheme it's a horrible crime but prior to the war uh, well i'm the youngest out of seven uh siblings um basically my father left uh, the country when i was three months old he came to the states uh, my mother raised us uh we lived in Beiduku, uh, and then later we had to move to Batunia, not too far, and because my oldest brother was going to uh, to start high school, and we didn't have high school in Beiduku at the time. So, you know, we moved, and then we were stable in uh, Batunia for the most part. Everybody was great, you know, the schools were great. It was uh, very fond of the memories we had there until... Uh, one day, when they pulled the earth from underneath our feet, and the so-called Six-Day War, you know, it was like 
that stage of my life and the state of mind I was in, I thought that was the end. I thought it was like hell had finally come, you know. The worst part was uh, the fear of the unknown, uh, uh, the fear of life and death, the fear of your loved ones, if you're going to see them or not. And it just multiplied. It multiplied hundreds of times over again, you know. And it, it, it made us strong. It really made us a lot strong, you know. Myself, as well as my siblings, I would speak, you know, for all of us. My worst memory is, it's like overnight, I lost my childhood. And at the age of six, I had to think, act, and be a man. And that's not so easy. To lose your childhood is, is, is not right. Every child needs their own childhood in their lives in order to be a productive adult human being, not to live through wars. Not to see bombs and missiles drop on their <laughs> on their world, not to see their friends, their best friends shot in the back of the head. We we watched the Six Day War like people would sit in front of their TV sets here and watch a movie. The whole countryside fled. People just carrying everything in their whole world on on their backs and their children and families and and just going not knowing where they're going they were passing in front of our in front of our house basically sito your sito my mom insisted we're not leaving there was uh four including myself and siblings that were there with sito the night everything started she just wrapped us up in blankets we sat on our veranda and we watched the war like it was a movie the missiles came in, thunder, like the world, the earth started rumbling, and they exploded. They flew past our heads. The planes came in, the jets came in. Flares started dropping out of the sky, where they lit up the whole sky. At that age, I didn't know what flares were. I was just mesmerized how they lit up the whole countryside, not knowing that they were dropping flares and parachutes that just lit up the whole countryside. And uh, I can't, I can never stop the noises in my head of how these missiles passed our heads, you know. But we were all young. Three of my, my older siblings, two were in Jordan and one was in Beit Baku. And this happened while the rest of the family, we were in Batunia. Yeah. You know, now we lived on a mountain. And we could see basically, we had a view of the whole countryside, the whole town. And... Uh, we stayed up all night, I believe, and by morning, the whole countryside was military. Tanks, jeeps, trucks, soldiers, monsters, you name it, they were all there. And then their soldiers, they had them like sand, the dirt all over their uniforms, unruly, uncapped. It's like they just came out of, they just came out of the major battle. They were like on the front lines of major battle just to intimidate and scare us with their looks. I was a little, a little boy and they looked like 10 foot monsters to me, you know. They all had their AK-47s and what have you on their backs. They had belts of hand grenades, uh, weapons, guns, everything on them. They came to us looking down at us like we were not even human, like we were insects, intimidating us. And 
And of course, there was no one left in the land but women and children and the older people. Where were the men? The men, the ones that were there, they were all civilian, they were farmers, but they were all older. The younger men, those that could, they left. They knew their lives were in danger. Prior to the, the Six-Day War, that summer there were demonstrations throughout Palestine by students, and you've seen students all over demonstrating. At that time, the Jordanian army ruled our land. They had the tanks and military all over. And as far as we knew, they were going to protect us. As I understand, other Arab armies came in from Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, uh, Iraq, you know, Algeria, all over the Arab countries. They all sent people to help us. Throughout the whole land was all army. Uh, in, the, in the morning, planes started throwing uh, literature, you know, that, that were written in, in Arabic, telling everybody to put up the white flag, Al-Rayal Beda, which means a white flag. And uh, a white flag would be anything white that you have in cloth, a bedspread, a bed sheet, you know, a curtain or anything, put it on a stick, tie it up to a stick and put the stick on top of your house and uh, to show that you give up. That's what we were told to do. And if we put, if we hung up the white flags, they will not harm us. That's already after the damage has been done throughout the countryside. And then, of course, everybody, uh, <laughs> all you saw was white flags on top of everything, the whole countryside. And then they started moving and moving in and moving in. And next couple of days, they'd come to, uh, to our residences, our houses, uh, to take count of people. And it was like, be like two to four people in groups. It would be like a couple of girls, a couple of guys, you know. They speak Arabic better than us, just as good as we did, you know. And they would take account of everybody in the household, names, ages, everything. And they gave us cards. They called Hawiya. Hawiya means ID cards. Yeah. And then it just started systematic, you know. Every day is something new. Every, every moment something was going on. You would you would be sitting outside or something, and then you'll see houses just being blown apart. the The army would come in, the Israeli army would come in, and to a family and and tell them, oh, "You have five minutes. Get anything you want out of the house. We're gonna blow up your house." In five minutes, ten minutes, or even an hour, you're lucky if you can get all your children together out of the house. Yeah. And all you saw was houses being blown up. It was really scary. It was loud. The earth would be shaking. And uh, we found out that they would put bombs on every corner of the building and bombs in the middle, and they blow it up together at the same time. The roof would go flying off. Windows and doors would explode and shatter. But the walls, they always stayed. No matter how many bombs they put in, <laughs> the walls always stayed. You know? Do you want to explain to people why the walls always stayed? Yes, the walls always stayed because the way uh, we build our houses mm -hmm. back home is from cut rock, which is like four feet by four feet of solid rock that's hand cut by stone cutters. Our buildings back home are so strong that even with their best bombs, they still couldn't top of the walls. 
after all of this, you and and Sitbo and and everyone stayed in Palestine for about another year, year and a half. Yeah. Um, then you guys came to the United States. Can you talk to me about your experience being exiled here to the U.S. and what that felt like? My experience coming to the U.S. and being torn from our homeland is the closest to hell that I or we ever thought was possible. It's after living through the war. It was, uh, of course, unmanageable separation from our loved ones or families or cousins, you know, grandparents, homes, lands. We had a major culture shock coming here. Many disappointments. When you came here, because you didn't meet Ciro until you were eight years old. Yes. Oh, my dad, yeah, he left when I was three months old in 1960, 60, 61. I was born November 6th. So we had to be leaving like in January, February of 61. He came by boat to the States, stopped in Italy, Europe along the way. I knew my dad from a black and white picture that was hanging on our uh, living room wall when he was in his 20s. You know, the next time I met him was uh, November 11, 1968, five days after my eighth birthday. And uh, of course, we met him at the airport in Chicago. We landed in New York, my mother and the younger four siblings, which included me, my two older brothers, Muhammad Mahmoud, they were identical twins, and Haifa, my sister. We landed in New York. From there, transferred on a plane to Chicago. When we landed in New York, they handed us our uh, green cards, each one of us. We were already accepted. We came under the status of uh, what they called refugee status. Sorry, no, I, I didn't know you came under refugee status. So you guys came yeah. here as refugees? Yeah, that's what they, we came under. They kicked us out of our homeland. Well, we had to go somewhere. But while they kicked us out of our homeland, they no longer wanted us there. America opens their doors for us to be refugee status immigrants. So wait, did they kick you guys out of Batunia or did they kick you out of Beitukku? Because, I, I mean, we still have our village. We still have our home. No, no, we still got it, yeah. But they wanted uh, they wanted to cleanse the population. Uh, they wanted the Arabs to go so the Israelis, so the Jews could come in from Europe, from Russia. No, this I'm not. I'm saying yeah. that um, why did... I thought Sito left to join Ciro because Ciro wasn't allowed to come back. Yeah. That's what, yeah, exactly. So, you know, when, well, the grand plan of, of the state of Israel is to get rid of the Palestinians as much and as, as, and as fast as possible. America opened its gates for us to come here as refugees. So even though you weren't a technical refugee because we still have our home in Palestine to this day and our village and everything, they gave you a refugee status upon entering the country yes wow yes we we came under the status of being refugees and all because Ciro my Ciro your dad could not return without going to prison for life or being executed correct yes my father your Ciro left the left Palestine because uh, he was to go to jail for life yeah. In army, 
You know, even it. though he worked for the army, he was a policeman. I guess they didn't see eye to eye with Ciro's views. And they locked him up and charged him with life sentence. Yeah. And back home, there is no uh, no bond or, or nothing like, you know, other societies. So it took his grandmother to go through different people till she got to the grandmother of the king of Jordan at the time. She begged the mother of the king of Jordan, telling her, this is my one and only my oldest grandson. So here's the grandmother of the king of Jordan. She uh, gives Sido permission and barely any freedom just to get out of jail and come back to court to be sentenced. Once that happened, Sido just took off, got on the first boat out, went to Nicaragua, uh, where his father was, my grandfather, my Sido was. He went there for a year or two years. He got really sick in the jungles there. He had to come back home. As soon as he came back home, right away, as soon as he got back home, they arrested him and locked him up. For all oh, first, they made him, they put him in the, to some military base. And Sito had to follow him with the first two children she had, Intisar and Hatif. So all of this is prior to 1967. Yeah, yeah. So we're exactly. talking about in like the 50s. Uh, yeah, late 50s, early 60s. Yeah, this was late 50s, you could see. So that's the second time after that. <laughs> was able to uh, get gain freedom until another uh, court appearance. And once he gained that freedom, he got on a boat and came to America. He didn't speak English. He didn't know anyone. He only had $25 in his pocket and a phone number. And he wanted to come to Chicago. Even though we had family in New York and California, Ciro picked Chicago because he wanted to start fresh and independent. And as he said, to work hard and uh, depend on no one but his right arm, in his words. So... You know, we came here in 1968. We didn't speak English, of course not. Uh, my older brothers spoke yes and no. That's all they knew, you know. And that didn't always help us. It got us in trouble sometimes. Yeah. With the people here. Yeah, but it was a, it was a major culture shock for more than one reason. The Palestinians were very uh, looked down at on because of Jewish propaganda and what, you, what have you. And where we resided was the back of the yards in, on the south side of Chicago, which was uh, heavy, heavy with gangs. So everybody wanted, they, everybody wanted a piece of us. My first day in school, leaving the school with like 20 books, a kid that's like, to me, three times as big as me, punches me in the nose. And my nose turns into a faucet of blood. Seriously, I mean, my nose was shooting blood out like it was a faucet. I threw my books down. I ran after him till the end of the playground where there was a fence and I had stopped. Because had I gone beyond that fence, I would have lost my way home. And then uh, from that point on, we lived in that neighborhood for like two and a half, close to three years. We were fighting seven days a week, me and my older two brothers, Hamad and Mahmoud, that were twins. Even on Saturdays and Sundays, we'd be watching the cartoons. Gangs would come in front of our house. They all want to fight us. We would wait until the commercials. We'd go out, fight, and come back, finish watching the cartoons. This went on for like the first three years of Welcome to America. 
your first introduction to in America was to continue fighting. Yeah. yeah. For, yeah. Just for being fighting Palestinian. For three days. For three years, I mean. Do you wish you had grown up in Palestine instead? Of course. Back in Palestine, I was the baby out of Southern. Nobody ever hit me. Nobody ever yelled at me. And then after we moved, after that amount of time, we moved from the back of the yard to the Marquette Park neighborhood. And we still fought over there. It's been an ongoing battle ever since we came here. I appreciate you you sharing all of this with me and those who are listening, all these stories about what your life was like in Palestine, going through the war and, and coming to the U.S. I want to ask, why do you think it was so important to share those memories with me and my siblings growing up? That's a very important question. Of course, I felt it was my obligation, Dad, to share my experiences with you and the rest of my children. But the one factor that is the most important is so you would learn your history, the history of your people, to share my stories and my experiences with you and your siblings was in order for you to have the knowledge you will need in order not to fall victim to the same experiences that I, my parents, have lived, suffered, and died with. And also with the hope that someday we will solve this unnatural, illegal, very immoral (laughs) nightmare and keep the hope alive. You know, the hope of our forefathers, my my forefathers, your forefathers, to keep that hope alive and pass it on to your children that someday we will have a place we can call our own home. And hopefully that you will be able to share stories of happiness with your children, not stories of pain like I shared with my parents, my grandparents, the experiences I lived through. Yeah. I'm not just saying me as one, but the whole family and the whole, the whole Palestinian people, you know? I appreciate everything that you just shared with me. And following up from that, in what ways do you think that Palestine holds space as memory instead of being solid land underneath your feet has shaped the way that you connect to Palestine? Specifically, do you connect to it as something from the past or as something that is a constant everyday aspect of your life and who you are? Of course, the physical land is is very much different than the memory of the land. Right. Uh, My connection to Palestine touches every aspect of every day of my whole life that is always growing, never waning, never going away. You know, I will admit the physical magnetism that I feel from the land, I do miss it very much, the most. I'm sure you were there, you felt that. Uh, There's no... There's no words I could describe. It's like a magnet pulling on you when I'm in, in my hometown, Bidduko. Even though I was born in Ramallah, which is also my hometown. All of Palestine is, is you know, our hometown. But especially where our roots came from, Bidduko. There's that feeling that's like a magnet is pulling, pulling on you. And the feeling of safety, fulfillment, peace, all of the above plus more. That's what I really miss. And of course, every day, <laughs> I am Palestinian. I am Palestinian. My children are Palestinian. My world is Palestinian. I came here as a child, not of my own free will, with the hope and determination to go back someday. 
And unfortunately, that still hasn't happened. But also, I would like my children to go back. And the much land that we have out there, there's plenty for everybody. We can all live in peace and harmony and love, of course. You know, and that's right. Yeah. I see, like to see my grandchildren and so on. Having a, a place they can call their own, a land that they can stand up in and hold their heads up high and be counted as humans, not as subhumans. They never admitted there was a Palestine. In 1980, I went to get my passport, and they asked me, where are you from? I said, Palestinian. And the clerk at the immigration office had a big book in front of him, started searching the pages, and he came back to me, and he told me, I'm sorry, there's no such thing as Palestinian. Well, at the age of 20, I'm young and, and hard-headed and hot-blooded at the same time. After waiting like an hour and a half, two hours in line to get to my turn, there was a long line behind me. And I uh, exploded at him. I said, I am here in front of you with my birth certificate, and you're telling me I don't exist? And he said, please hold on. He looked again through his book. He goes, I'm sorry, the United States does not recognize Palestine as, as a country. I said, my birth certificate says Palestine is a country. Your Bible, the Quran, every holy book on earth says Palestine is a country. And you're not, your country is saying whether I'm dead or alive, I don't even exist. When I was young in grade school in the U.S., I read a story called The Man Without a Country. So right there, that memory came back in my head. I'm a man without a country. He came back telling me, would you like to go down as Israeli? We do recognize Israel. I said, I'm not Israeli, I'm Palestinian. Then he said, how about Jordan? Go down as Jordanian? I said, I'm not Jordanian. Look again at my birth certificate. I am Palestinian. I said, Jerusalem. He said, Jerusalem is not a country, it's a sea. Oh, back and forth, we haggled. Then he mentioned, how about the West Bank of Jordan? The West Bank is the other title they gave to Palestine. So they don't have to say the word Palestine. You know, got tired of it. I said, okay, put down the West Bank of Jordan. My passport came back, Jordan. <laughs> how about that? That sucks. I'm if my oldest brother had the same experience. He hired an attorney. And at the end, he finally went down to stateless. Really? He's, yes. On his passport and his citizenship papers, uh, stateless. Man without a country. Because they don't recognize us as a country. They don't recognize us as a human being or a society or any of that. So going off of everything, you know, that we just said, if you had to pick one memory embedded in your psyche that you feel connects you the most to your Palestinian identity or to the land, which memory would it be? And why is it this one? That would be... Anyone and everyone that I ever meet in my life, I always make sure that they know I'm a Palestinian. I put it out there that I am a Palestinian, you know? And at the same time, I always do it in a sense where it represents the rest of my people in a good way, you know? Unless under very, very extreme, intense situations, which I really, you know, which is, you, you want to say, situations of life or death, I don't care about letting them know where I'm from. But every other aspect of my life, I represent myself as I'm a Palestinian. So you're saying that you don't have an actual memory that connects you the most to your Palestinian identity, but that you have these memories of actions, like action memories, of stating that you're Palestinian to everyone that you meet, and that to you is what connects you the most to your Palestinian identity? Oh no, I have many memories here though. One, one wonderful memory would be when Sito, your Sito, my mother and I, 
went back home in 1980, mm -hmm. and I only thought we had like a handful of aunts, uncles, and cousins, and like the whole village of Beduku came out. It was like a big party. It was like a big wedding or something. They all came out to greet us, and they all and it was all just pure love, just pure love. And most of them, they used to remember me when I was born. And not one person didn't kiss me on both sides of my face. And of course, my mom there and everybody came and the whole, it's like the whole town came to greet us. And of course, you know, those, those uh, singing or joy sounds that they make in in Oros, in, in, a, in a wedding, right? Yeah. Like that? Yeah. Everybody was doing all the women in Beduku did it. I did so much. I could talk about this for a long time and, <laughs> and just experience alone, you know, without. So for you, it was the memory of finally going back home. Go, yeah, yes, exactly. And also the flip side to that is leaving back home to come back here, you know. That's a pain that I felt when I left. And I can't imagine the pain of having to leave because you're being forced to leave. I knew I was leaving. Uh, it was a choice I made. I paid for the plane ticket. But the idea of being forced from my homeland, I can't. I don't know that, that pain firsthand. Like the experience yeah. of it. I just know that I'm not allowed to live on my homeland. And so there is a pain because... I didn't experience the act of loss. I'm just experiencing the loss of, of the land itself. But yeah. um, Palestine is an ancient land seeped in ancient knowledge, traditions, folklore, religion, and culture, right? Right. In what ways do you think memory serves us as a way to connect us to our roots and to who we are? How does it connect to you, to who we are? Well, memory is... Is a is very very strong very major connection that we can't live without memory. If you have no memory of your past, you have no future. So the memory of the land, of our parents, grandparents, forefathers, all that combined into one, it's just is is unexplainable. You know, it's just genetically, it's it's in your psyche, it's in your. To me, it's in my everyday be of being a being, you know. And if I lose that memory, I just that would be the end of me as a human being, I believe. Yeah. You know, because there's so much memory, so much you haven't seen as much or experienced as much of that as as I did. It's unfortunate, but I hope you will be, and your children, and their children. And while I was trying to explain all this stuff. And talking about all this to you and your siblings, it was just the point was to get it across what we are going through as a people, and hopefully that, and then someday you will be able to experience that for yourself, for your children, their children, you know, and so on. Yeah. That hope of that memory has to stay strong. It has to until we're until we're finally home. Until you know, it's very tragic. My parents hoped all their lives that someday this will be over and we'll finally see peace. Their parents died with the same hope, you understand? Yeah. And and their parents. And I don't want to die with that hope still, just hoping. I'd like to see it 
into fruition. Yeah. I like yeah. to see it for my children, my grandchildren. I like for them to experience it on its true scale, what, it, what it's all about. So and I, I, I don't want to die with that hope and not seeing it happening. And I don't want, you know, I want it to happen, basically. I want to see that happen in my lifetime. I would love to see it happen. And if not, in your lifetime. But it just can't go on generation after generation without nothing happening, just getting worse. So for you, memory acts as a way to anchor us so that we know where we come from, so we know how, so that we, we know where we're going? Yes. You need to know where you came from in order to know where to go with that. I hear you. And, and coming, following up from that, Living in Chicago since you were a kid, how do you think your memories of Palestine define you as an exiled Palestinian living in the diaspora? Oh, well, that's a great question. That there's not one day or one moment that goes by without me being reminded that I'm a Palestinian, whether by someone else, whether by myself, or by a situation that I might fall in. I never really fit in as one of the other guys. I never really fit in as one of the other people. I always seem to stick out for some reason or another. In a good way, in a negative way, in a, in a, in a lonely way, in different ways. But I am never fully accepted just for being me, being a person, a human being. There's always that aspect of me being a Palestinian. Whether on my behalf or on behalf of the people around me or the situation I'm in, not, not, not anything you know, sets me apart from that. It's, it's a constant, ongoing thing. Constantly, you know. Yeah. I don't know if you ever felt that way, you know. We're like, you're not the outcast, but you're viewed that way. You're not the bad person, but you don't fit in with the rest of them. You it's like there's I mean? something off with you, and nobody can pin it, even you. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've had plenty of experiences where... I'm just standing in a room and I realize I, I'm like, oh no, I'm the only Palestinian. I'm, and everybody's looking at me like I'm the only Palestinian. And it's like, I'm a huge elephant in the room just for being Palestinian. And it's a really weird feeling. I, I know, I know this feeling, but I've known it my whole life. Maybe not knowing it my whole life in the sense that you have, but you know, growing up in the United States. So I can't imagine what it's like to have lived in a country where, like, being Palestinian, you know, you all of you were Palestinian, you know? It wasn't like, you know, to go from, from just uh, being someone who's one of many, and it's not really necessarily talked about unless we're talking about what's happening as far as the war, to coming here and it's like uh, everything reminds you that you're different, everything that reminds you that you're Palestinian and you don't belong, or you feel like you don't belong. Exactly. And, oh, there's many, many in this society that will make sure you feel that also. Yeah, yeah. And there's someone that would, there's people that told me, when you say you're Palestinian, everyone will respect you. Whether they like you or they hate you, they will respect you. I've been told that two, three times in my life. Why do you think that is? Why would we be respected even if we're hated or liked? I don't know, maybe because we're uh, labeled as warriors. Because we're the little guys that are standing up to the major power of Israel. 
being backed by the 50 states of the United States of America. You and Sitha were like the main family members for me growing up who would sit with me and talk to me about Palestine for hours. Yeah. And I have distinct memories of Sitha telling me stories of the occupation and then she would switch to like stories from the Quran or about uh, Jesus, stories of the Holy Land, and then she would switch to things that were, you know, stories of legend, things that sound like fairy tales to me, but that she would swear up and down were real. And as a kid, all of these stories to me just sounded amazing. They sounded almost like entertainment. Yes. Story, she, she wove stories of our family, stories of the land, our history, uh, religion, all together. Yeah, it's, she weaved them all together. Yeah, and she did it so amazingly, you, you know, seamlessly. She would go from um, a story about us to a story about the land to a story about religion to a story about legend. Did Sitho's stories of the land and our family help keep Palestine alive for you? Did they keep Palestine alive for me? Yeah. Very much. Oh, yes. So the best memories of my life. I was listening to Sitho talk about Palestine. Yeah. <laughs> Same. I never, I never got bored to listen to her. Honest to God. She would keep you so entertained. I am honored to have been raised on your memories and the memories of other family members. Of Palestine, the Nakba, the Naksa, the occupation, and everything our family has endured since Israel colonized our land. When I was a kid, did the idea of passing on resistance ever occur to you when you shared our family's stories? Of passing on the resistance? Yeah. Mm, farthest thing from my mind, then. Really? Yes, the farthest thing from my mind. So you didn't think you were passing on this sense of resistance by telling us the stories? No, no. Why not? Never. I, I, I just want you to share the knowledge of, of our past. So you will not fall victim in your own lifetimes to the same thing that we fell victim to. I was not trying to instill in your head to to, to any of that. I just want you to be proud of your of yourself, of your people, of where you came from, and like I mentioned earlier, to keep that home and hope and dream alive, so you can have a better future and your offspring. You know, I don't want you to be. Again, in any conflict at any time. Hell no. Resistance doesn't always have to be about violence. No, it doesn't. But whereas there's resistance, there's opposite resistance to that. True. It doesn't come out in a good way, Deb. I'm very proud of what you're doing. This is something you reached on your own. But at, at the point I was indulging you with everything and your siblings, with our history and everything was not ever to have you you know maybe subconsciously i don't know yeah. but consciously it was never meant that way wow you know for me resistance has always been this idea in my head so just hearing you say that right now i i swear i thought i knew what your answer was gonna be you just threw me through a loop that's amazing though to know that the idea of just wanting to pass on our roots and our history manifested in the way that it did for me at least in this idea that we have to resist and we have to do the work so that we can get that history and that land back and i really do want to thank you for sharing all of that with me and for teaching me about where i really come from so you know. so knowing that you didn't mean to pass on resistance 
I do want to ask, how do you think memory serves as a tool of resistance? You wouldn't have resistance if you didn't have memory of something that you didn't accept, something that's wrong and you want to make right. As long as we got memory, we will always survive and endure that. They can't, they can't take that away from us. They will never be able to take that, that away from us. They're trying. They're constantly trying, you know. So do you think that because we remember, we resist? <laughs> yes, because we remember and we share our stories with our loved ones. We resist. Going further from that, Israel continuously destroys Palestinian history, documents, all of those things, right, that we just talked about. And, but they can't seem to touch our memories as we were saying. Yet as each generation ages and dies off and more, Palis more of Palestine becomes stolen by Israel, how would you envision memory being passed down to new generations? It's our responsibility. It's every Palestinian's responsibility to pass down their knowledge, their history, their memories to the next generation. We are responsible to do that, to keep, to keep our being alive to keep Palestine alive, to keep that memory alive. How would you want me to pass on that information? I would want you to sit with your children, talk to them, explain to them, share with them. And also at the same time, I would love for you to put in print everything and anything you can regarding Palestine in our past, our present, and inshallah, our future in that perspective. See, our goal as Palestinians to be heard. So the best way to be heard right now is to pass those thoughts, those memories, and those stories on to the next generation. Your children, their children, and anybody and, and anyone else that's, that you can. Put it in print, whether, uh, you know, in paper or tech or anything. We just need to be heard dead as loud and as often as we can be in order to change. When things, they're wrong, but they're slow. And then sometimes you think there's changes, but it's actually a, a, a two-way thing that's, you know, it's pre-planned for no change. Do you know what I'm trying to say? I know what you're saying. Yeah. So then how do you think our memories serve us when we think about the future of Palestine? And memories to serve us is uh, to make sure we don't fall again. We're tired of falling, picking up the pieces and trying to march on. <laughs> As you can see, the, all the generations have died. The generations after that are getting older, as in my case, you know. Now it's your generation and the ones after you to keep it alive and to keep it loud and to make sure as many could hear it and hear about it. Free, free Palestine! Harirti. <laughs> <laughs> loud and proud. <laughs> Be free, Palestine. Yeah. Um, hey, we say hurriya. freedom. Yeah. I've definitely um, screamed that at marches and protests. <laughs> yeah, More than too. once. I do want to ask. Yes. How do you think the memories we carry, all the pain, the suffering, the trauma attached to them, help us today? Well, hopefully we will never... Uh, make the same mistake twice if, if they teach us there would be the tool for us to to move forward not not to dwell on, the, on them but to learn from them and to move forward and don't fall again and 
and and stand up and try to move forward again. We're tired of falling down. Seriously tired of falling down. Picking up the pieces, dusting off, and marching up again. That being said, how do we use our past and our memories to create a future of liberation? We need a collaborative collaboration with each other. We need to unite. We need not to 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 indulge ourselves in petty things, and and carry hatred or carry resentment or carry anything negative with us. We need to accept each other, love each other, put a vision forward and move forward towards that vision. And the only way to do that is to educate ourselves, educate our children, to look beyond the petty, the small, the you know, the things that don't make a difference. Five minutes from now, you think about something, you say, man, that was so petty, why did I do that? We need to go beyond that. We must keep the past and the memories alive. The best way to do that is interact with each other, put them in print, talk about them, never stop talking about them. Never stop talking about the past. How does never that stop. create a future liberation? Future liberation is minds coming together. Like I said, a collaboration of different minds. Understanding. Understanding creates liberation. You know what I mean? When we are all on the same level, we understand each other. We have an understanding of what we want. You know what I mean? We're on the same playing field. We're on the same level. We have the same goal. And we need to meet that end goal with positive. No, no more depending on other nations, on other Arab countries, on the U.S., on the United Nations. No more dependence on that. There is none. It's all fabricated. We need to depend on ourselves, our children, our future. That's what we need to do. Don't depend on others to do for us. And it's achievable. It is very achievable. This is really sad because this brings us to our last question and the end of this episode. Um, (laughs) If Palestine was free today, what would Palestine look like tomorrow? If Palestine was free today... I think we will have our own internal struggles from the bad that want to control. And, you know, there's always, in every society, there's always good and bad. We would have to, we would have to really start from scratch all over again. We may have infighting. We have to, uh, we have to get rid of greed. It's basically greed is is the the definition of violence and war and, and, and the end. That's, it's all greed. If we today, if we today get free Palestine, believe me, we're going to have to do a lot of in-home cleansing, in-home cleaning, like they say. Is there any beautiful parts to it? Oh, yes. What are the beautiful parts? To be able to walk down the street with your head up high and not caring about somebody who's going to snipe you or kill you or stab you or lock you up and, and, and tear your house down, kill your children. Destroy your loved ones. Heaven. <laughs> oh, serious. Would be heaven. Peace. Finally. I, and I specifically ask this because I want us to envision liberation. I want us to envision what a free Palestine looks like. That's what free Palestine would look like. It would be, and it would be peaceful. Just peaceful. No killing. No worrying about being killed and things like that. You know, because there's more, more, more uh, believers in 
most seen in any, any place on earth I could see. There are a lot of believers, and we've been worse than a roller coaster, up and down, up and down. It's generation after generation is just tired. They're just tired of everything, of riding the roller coaster. People just want to have their feet on the ground, be stable, and they have the same admirations as the rest of the world. To live in peace, have children, raise your children, enjoy them, enjoy the grandchildren. I want to say thank you so much, Dad, for being a part of uh, this episode and having this conversation with me, sharing your memories, sharing your experiences, as traumatic as they were and as early as they happened in your life. I, I understand how difficult it was, and I really do appreciate how you opened yourself up to not only me, but to those who are listening to have a better understanding of how we hold memory in our hearts, in our bodies, and in on our minds. So uh, thank you so much. Habib Tirada, I'm so very proud of you, and I'm so honored to be a part of all this. And I want to say, for the record, that this would not have been possible had it not been for the stories that I heard from you and Sito and Ciro and everybody else growing up. This project was in the making since I was a kid and I just didn't know it. It comes from this knowing, this passing of memories that has really shaped who I am as a person and made me realize that these are the stories that not only need to be told, but there is something so important about each Palestinian being able to express themselves and seeing how diverse we are as a people and how various and, and diverse the, our experiences are as a people. So I, I just want to say that all of this is really because of how you taught me, how, how you've shaped me and how you've raised me and, and taught me who I am as a person because of me being Palestinian and how me being Palestinian is directly tied and intertwined with every part of my being. It is the, the power of memory that brought this this project into fruition. So thank you so much to you and Sitho and every family member who helped me get here and to this point. Thank you, Lado. Thank you, Baba. I love you. I love you too. Thank you for joining us for our conversation today. Remember, each of our experiences are valid and each of us are needed. We each carry a bit of Palestine in us no matter where we reside in the world, we are all a part of the collective. Until liberation and return.